0: And we had a mini-series that we finished last week on a topic that we called sufficient. So today we'll transition here a little bit, but we're still going to continue to build foundations as we talk about a very necessary, but almost a little hard to speak on topic called the fear of God. We're going to call this title today, The Fear of God is a Gift. And before we get to the, to the message here, do you guys have any phobias? Taxes. Taxes. <laughs> That's a great one. That should have been on my list. Taxes. Any other else want to confess a phobia they have? Come on, we're amongst friends here today. What's that? Spiders. Spiders. Oh, you might get a little uncomfortable at one part of my message today, Peggy, just to warn you. Uh, Anyone else? I don't have a spider, by the way. Snakes. Snakes. (laughs) Spiders and snakes. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to give you some 10 phobias today that grown-ups have. Grown-ups have these phobias. Now, kids have phobias, too. And my kids definitely have things that they're scared of. But these are ten things I believe a lot of grown-ups are scared of. Okay, number one, to go along with taxes, bills. Bills, right? You ever walk out to your uh, mailbox and you get something that looks like a bill and you have a little heart flutter? Especially with those, those heat bills. That's something I wasn't aware of when coming to the North Country. That i would have to take out a loan and sell a kidney <laughs> to pay for my heat. So I'm terrified of bills now. Have you guys see me moonlighting at Walmart? Don't judge, okay? Just trying to put heat in the Walker home. Just teasing. Here's another thing that grown ups can be scared of teenagers. Teenagers. Some people come up to us and say, How many kids do you have? And I tell them, and they go, Wow. And then they'll say, Any teenagers yet? To which I'll say, No. And they go, Just wait. I don't exactly know what they mean, but I'm about to find out in a couple years. So, teenagers. Uh, Another phobia grown-ups have is someone coughing near us in the store, right? Anyone a little terrified of that? And speaking of Walmart, I was there the other day, and I was picking up uh, Vicks Vapor Rub, because that's a staple for a family of ours. Always getting Vicks Vapor Rub. And so I was trying to just get a can and go on my way, and there was a guy in that aisle, just a mess. Coughing, sneezing, stuff coming down. And I said, you know what? Nope, nope. I did like three laps around Walmart. (laughs) Hoping that by the time he came back, he would have moved on. He didn't, so I had to go somewhere else for that Vicks Vapor run. Um Here's another one that we kind of experience sometimes, and maybe in the, during the pandemic, this was a thing, but an empty toilet paper roll, right? Um, don't be that person that doesn't check. Here's a little tip from your pastor. Before you, you know what, make sure there's, a, there's toilet paper. Here's another one that happens only in the bathroom. It's the bathroom scale. You guys ever heard of the phrase, ignorance is bliss? Yes, ignorance is bliss. I told you, because of the food you guys have been bringing, the walkers, because of our baby, which we're thankful for, by the way, I think I put on a few pounds. And I was walking by the bathroom scale the other day thinking, should I check? And I said, nope. <laughs> Moving right on, ignorance is bliss. Scared of that bathroom scale a little bit. Here's another one, new moles on the body. Yes, new moles. Sometimes something appears in your skin. And the other day, this kind of happened to me. I looked down at my arm and said, that's new. But uh, it flicked right off. So... <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it's gone now. And uh, new moles in the body. Here's another one maybe adults will understand, is drinking anything after 7 p.m. Anyone else? Come on. Those who know, you know, right? Drinking anything after 7 p.m. Here's another one that terrifies people. Public speaking or praying. Right? I'm doing one of the most scary things here today. I'm standing before you speaking. I've had people come up to me saying, listen. I love you, Pastor Todd, but if you ever ask me to speak or pray in public like I just did to Jamie Rose, I will trash your office. And I, don't, I think it's tongue-in-cheek, at least I hope it is, but I'm taking that to heart. Uh, here's another one grown-ups are scared of is sitting in the front row at church. Now, not the Remix, and not Dave, and not Phyllis, but look at many of you. What, what are you so terrified of? Am I, am I going to spit on you? Is that, is that what it is? Okay. Just wear a shield wear a mask? Are you afraid I'm going to ask you up on stage like a magic act and saw you in half? I'm not going to. That's not what we're doing here. And the last thing I believe grown-ups should be scared of are getting caught between a moose and Pastor Todd. (laughs) Because if I ever got moose, you're going to want to be out of the way because I'm going to get that camera out. I'm going to go experience that moose and... Some phobias. We're going to talk today about fear. I hope that's okay. It's not Halloween. But I believe this is a necessary foundation today, as we're going to talk about the fear of God is a gift, because I really believe it is. I'm going to switch my screen here, so my screen is up on the screen for you guys to see. So talk amongst yourselves. Okay, there we go. You have little sheets that I printed out for you today. You guys can use those or not. It's just something that we wanted to print out so we can have some notes. If some of you are note-takers, I thought today would be one of those days. It would be helpful to take notes. But we're going to call today's lesson, The Fear of God. That's hard to read, but The Fear of God is a gift. The Fear of God is a gift is where we're going today because I truly believe it is. The Fear of God, sadly, is one of those deficient doctrines in our modern Christianity. Not a lot of pastors are talking about the fear of God, at least in my experience. And as I've studied the Word of God, I can't help but see the fear of God everywhere. It's all over Scripture. In fact, I'll give you a little behind-the-scenes experience. When I was putting this sermon together, I had too much text. So much that I actually had to trim it down to put it in sort of a sermon format because it was so much text from the Word of God on this one topic, but we're going to look at this today from a perspective of the fear of God as a gift, and I believe it is. Now, if you know the book Ecclesiastes, that book was written by King Solomon, and King Solomon is kind of a complex figure in the Bible. He was a guy who should have done a lot for the Lord, but unfortunately he didn't, because he lived for the world, and in the first 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes, he's basically telling his readers that I had riches... I had power, I had women, I had everything the world says is valuable. And what does he say about those things? What is it? Vanity. He says, vanity of vanity is a chasing after the wind. I've had it all, I've experienced it all. It does nothing for a person. It is plastic, it is hollow. So you get to this last chapter in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon says this, to summarize, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What's he going to tell us? He says this, as a matter of conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Do you notice that? Two things. He boils down his wisdom into two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. He says, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon was supposed to be the wisest man of his time, and that's the wisdom he wants to impart to us. Fear God. And keep his commandments. Now, unfortunately, Solomon struggled doing this. Even though he knew it, it was hard to make it into his life. But that doesn't make the wisdom any less valuable to us. Now, we have a complex relationship with fear, don't we? We do. We will go and let Hollywood scare the daylights out of us. And we'll pay good money for that to happen. And you see this lady here? I kind of like that look she's giving. I'm like, what's going on there? But we will go and let Hollywood scare us to death. But the problem is, is that's fake fear, isn't it? It's not real fear. There's no real danger sitting there. But real fear we hate. Real fear we avoid like the plague. But in all reality, real fear is a friend, is it? Now, if a building was falling down like it happened in 9-11, what would fear tell you to do? Run. Because it's your friend. Fear is a friend. Fear is there. Fear is given to you to help possibly save your life. And we're going to look at something kind of like that today. I just want you to see, before we get really into the the points here today, I want you to see a few passages of the Word of God that speak very clearly and bluntly about the fear of the Lord. Notice what it says, and this is probably one you're familiar with. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you went to a college course on Knowledge 101, introductory course to knowledge, guess it's the first thing they would teach you or should teach you. The fear of the Lord. You cannot get any deeper into God's wisdom until you begin with the fear of the Lord. The proverb says, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Guess what else it is? We'll get there here in a minute, but this is what it says in Romans regarding those who have no fear of God before their eyes. He's describing the ungodly. Do you think that describes the day and age we live in? People around us, the world today, do you think it would be described as there's no fear of God before their eyes? Because I would say yes. People are seemingly doing whatever they want, making up the rules as they go, because they don't fear God. And that's the danger when we don't fear God. But here's also what the fear of God does. It says, the fear of God, another proverb, is a fountain of life. Notice that. The fear of God is a fountain of life. Have you ever thought about that with the fear of God? If you've had a relationship like I have with the fear of God, it's something I want to avoid. I don't want to talk about the fear of God, and even today, I didn't really want to talk about this topic, but I felt it was very, very important for us. But according to the proverb, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. So I want you to picture a big fountain with water bubbling up. The fear of the Lord is that fountain, and hopefully we can understand that perspective here today. Another proverb also says this, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. That's the fear of the Lord. Now, did you ever have something that for a while you thought was not a very good thing, and then something changed your perspective, and now you see that today as a gift? Think about that. Is there anything in your life that at first first glance you thought was not a good thing? And then the more you experienced it, the more you looked into it, the more you realized it's a very good thing. I believe the fear of God is that. I believe the fear of God is a gift from God. And I hope by God's grace today that we're going to depend upon, we're going to see that here today. That the fear of God is not only just benign, not scary, not the worst thing in the world, but it's actually a present Sent down from God to us. Here's the four things we're going to look at today. And this is our effort to see the fear of God as a gift. And if you have your notes, that's what's right on the notes, okay? These four points are what we're going to get to today if God will bless us. Number one is it reminds us who's in charge the fear of God. The fear of God reminds us who's in charge. Number two, it points us to our need of Jesus. Number three, it helps us turn away from evil. And number four, it chases away all other fears. Now, I told you, um, sometimes you'll have something, you'll experience something that at first glance sounds like a foe, but the more you're around it, the more you look into it, it becomes a friend. Naps. When I was little, I hated naps. Anyone else? When you're a kid, naps are an enemy. They're a foe. In fact, when I was in third or fourth grade, my teacher in our class had had us do a weird project. She had us draw a pet peeve that we had. Something that annoyed us. And guess what I drew? Naps. I hate when my mom makes me take a nap, I wrote. And mom saved that for some reason. She thought that was funny because she thought, I think you knew someday that's going to turn around and be funny. Because guess what my relationship with naps is today? It's an absolute friend and ally of mine. Besides my lord and my wife, I don't think there's anything that supports me more than a good nap. Um, But I had to change my perspective on naps, because for a while, I didn't like naps. I thought naps were an enemy, and now they're a true friend of mine. Again, that's kind of where we're headed today, if God will bless us. We're going to start here. How is the fear of God a gift? Because it is a gift. And I believe we will see that by the end of this. And I'm going to ask you to hang with me today, because A, it might be a little longer than normal, and B, it might be a little heavier than normal. There's going to be periods, probably, that make us a little uncomfortable, but it's all in an effort to get to this answer. Is the fear of God a gift? And yes, it is. The first thing the fear of God does for us, though, is it reminds us who's in charge. Now, I told you before, we live in New Hampshire in the United States of America. Does anyone love freedom more than us? Anybody? We live in New Hampshire where our tagline is live free or die. And we live in what we would consider the greatest country in the world, right? Because we're a free country and we're thankful for that freedom, are we not? I am thankful to live in a country where I'm not under the tyranny or dictatorship like some of those other countries. We are able to make our own choices and live freely. But sometimes that little tagline, that little concept can lull us to sleep, thinking that we are autonomous, that we are our own God. But as we're going to learn, that's not a good thing. That is not a good thing if we go that far. Now, in Deuteronomy 10, this is an interesting passage because in Deuteronomy 10, this is the second time Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Because what happened to the first set of tablets? Does anyone know? He broke them. them. So Moses went back up the mountain to get another set of tablets from the Lord because the Ten Commandments were really important. That was God's law. So while Moses is up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, and he comes down from the mountain, and he's going to lead the nation of Israel to the Promised Land. And before they set off on their journey, this this is what Moses tells the people. He says, And now Israel... What does the Lord require of you? What do you think is at the top of the list? To fear the Lord your God. What does God require of you? To fear him. Do you remember what Ecclesiastes told us? The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Moses says something similar. What does the Lord (laughs) require of you? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your soul. And keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Do you notice that? Now, the first lie that was ever told here upon the earth was the devil to Eve. That somehow, by withholding this fruit from Eve, God was stealing joy away from Eve. Stealing happiness away from Eve, that God was maybe not a very good God, because why wouldn't he want you to experience the splendor of this fruit? And Eve believed it. But in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people, fear the Lord and obey his commandments, because it is for your good. The Lord does not command us to do anything that is for our harm, does he? So if the Lord is going to command us today, and he is going to command us today, it is going to be for our good This is a passage I've referenced before, but in Jeremiah 18.6, it says, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. We're not foggy on that, right? Who's the maker? It's God. We are the creation. He is the creator. And I'll say this about my job as a pastor. I think I have a pretty secure job. I don't think a lot of people want to be pastored. In fact, I said in my phobias, I don't think even a lot of people want to come up here on the stage for any reason at all. So I think I have a pretty secure job. Now, I will say this. I've met a lot of people who like to preach. I've met a lot of people who enjoy preaching. And sadly enough, and pastors, all pastors experience this, we meet a lot of people who want to nitpick at pastors. (laughs) Pastor, you're not doing enough of this. Pastor, too much of this. A lot of people like to do that. But I don't think a lot of people want to be pastors. And do you know why that is? Because what comes along with being a pastor? It starts with an R. Responsibility. A tremendous amount of responsibility comes from, with being a pastor. And guess what else it comes with? Being a parent. My children also do not want to be the parents. Now, they want to nitpick that their parents aren't giving them enough of this or enough of that. But in all reality, my kids do not want to be the parents because that comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. They would be in charge of paying the bills and putting food on the table and making sure that the house is warm and all the protection that is necessary They don't really want to do all that stuff. But they do want the blessings that come from that. And the first thing we're going to learn is you have two options. You can either be the authority of your own life, and that means every ounce of responsibility is then yours to protect yourself, to provide for yourself, to care for yourself while you're asleep. Because while you're asleep and unconscious, someone has to care for your body and your soul. Someone has to protect you from the enemy, the evil... Forces of darkness. Can any of us do that? Do any of us really want to do that? No, we don't. We're thankful we have a God. So if you do not want to be the authority figure, here's your other option respect those who are, because they have a hard job. And of course, we're talking about our Lord today. Our Lord has a tremendously important job in our lives. And instead of nitpicking and saying, Lord, why isn't life more like this? Why aren't you able to give me more of this? Moses and God himself would say, fear God. Fear God. In Psalm 2, it says this. Now he's referring to the kings of the earth. He says, now therefore, O kings, and I believe he's talking to all leaders of the entire world, not just Christian or not just secular, but every ruler. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. Be wise and be warned. And we could say that to our own president. We should pray for our president, but at the same time, we should want this for our president. Because he is our leader of this country. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that interesting? Now, when I've heard of the fear of God growing up, it was always described as reverence and respect. Maybe you guys have heard that as well. It's not really fear. It's reverence and respect. Well, possibly. Possibly it is. But I believe it's a little bit beyond that. And words like trembling help us understand that. Because trembling is not just Reverence and respect, is it? It's fear. Fear like you're thinking. And he says, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that an odd thing to tell somebody? To quake a little bit? To tremble a little bit? Well, let's keep reading. He says, Kiss the sun. Who's he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about Jesus. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly... Kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now let's talk about that here for a minute. The Lord is slow to anger, is he not? That's what it says in the word of God over and over. The Lord is slow to anger. He has a long fuse. Aren't you thankful that God has a long fuse and not a short fuse? We know some of those people in our lives who have short fuses, right? It doesn't take long for them to get really angry really quickly. Well, God does not get really angry really quickly. He is slow to anger. He has a long fuse. But, according to the psalm here, when his wrath is ready to be kindled, it kindles quickly. And maybe you can think of times like Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's Ark. The temple, The temple. absolutely. When it's time for God to show his wrath, and only God knows when that time is, his wrath is quickly kindled. So the writer, the psalmist says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Respect him, revere him, fear him, lest you perish in the way. You guys maybe have heard this phrase don't bite off the hand that feeds you. Anyone ever heard that phrase before? What's it basically telling you to do? Love those and respect those and maybe even fear those who take care of you. Because if you bite off the hand that feeds you, what happens? No longer feeds you. (laughs) It's a simple concept, right? But it's a powerful, profound concept. And basically, that's what the psalmist is saying. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Now, he does not want anyone to perish. Thankfully, our Lord is all about salvation and not condemnation. But it's telling you something which is pretty simple and profound. Instead of biting off the hand that feeds you, what should we do instead? Bow to him. Worship him. Love him. Adore him. Why? Because he feeds you. He loves you. He takes care of you. It is complete self-preservation even to kiss the sun. It's complete self-preservation to love and bow to God, isn't it? Because that God watches over our souls. And that's what the psalmist is getting to. Now if we go to Psalm 86... Here's what it says. It says, There is none like you among gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. You are set above. You are one of one. There is none like our God, is there? He says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord God, and, wor- excuse me, and glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God, one of one. And then the psalmist says this. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, because you are one of one, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because you watch over me. Because you take care of me. Because you're my salvation. Because you're my God. Because you nourish me, both physically and spiritually. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, for I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That word means eternal death. I will praise your name. I will praise you with my whole heart. I will glorify your name. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Do you see why we should fear the God? Because we're thankful that he's in charge. Now I'm going to show you kind of a funny picture. Take a look at that picture. That is one of the best pictures I've ever seen. Um, there's a dad at a ball game, and his big strong arm is out there protecting his kid, who uh, looks like just moments before this was looking down at his cell phone, or somebody's cell phone, and a bat got away from somebody in the, in, the, in the game and is aimed right at the kid's eyeballs. And thankfully, the dad was able to spare his son by reaching out his big strong arm, and basically, that's what the psalmist is saying. If this is Jesus, and this is us, this is Sheol. Jesus, by his own blood, has protected us from eternal death. And the psalmist says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. We don't want to be on Jesus' opposite side do we we want to be on his actual side and that's where the psalmist is going in the new testament jesus is telling a story here about people on the last day who will come up to jesus and claim to be his and sadly i believe this is going to happen for many people maybe even many people in america will come up to jesus on the last day saying lord lord We're yours, Lord, Lord, let us enter into the kingdom. Lord, Lord, we've loved you. And the Lord says to them in in response, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. If I am your Lord, then why don't you fear me and obey my commandments? Well, I'm going to share a little bit of my story today. Some of you have heard this already, but when I was going through my mid-20s, I was this person. I had been in Christianity for 20-some years at that point, and I was calling Jesus Lord of my life. The only problem is, is I was not doing what he told me. Now, I don't know if you can see that picture, but um, I have hiked before. Um, That question has been asked to me, and the answer is yes, I have hiked before. Here's a picture of me and a few of us who hiked in Virginia. Have anyone been down there and hiked in Virginia before? Yeah, it's a nice area. It's not quite as mountainous, of course, but I hiked up a hill, in Virginia, that took several miles to climb. And it, there's a little picture in proof of me and Janine. You can't really see us very well. But that's me and Janine way up at the top there. And as you can tell, we're kind of standing by this big precipice, aren't we? And you can't see how far down it is, but it's pretty far down. And that was kind of a dangerous picture. It felt a little nerve-wracking to be up there. But I did hike, and the view was worth it. And I was thankful that we hiked that day. And this is a metaphor for one I want to share you today. When I was in my mid-20s, I was getting very, very close, spiritually speaking, to the ledge. I was trying to see how far away from God I could get and how close I could get to evil without falling off. Is that a smart move? Would you say that's wise to do? No, that's not wise to do. And I'm going to show you another picture, which is also another kind of amusing picture. (laughs) That's me. That is me. Now, don't be alarmed, okay? This is a joke picture. I wanted to send that to my mom that day and uh, make, yeah, scare her a little bit, because that's what guys do. That's that's a nice son, right? So actually, you can't see it, but there's a little ledge down there that I'm standing on, I'm leaning on. But I'm leaning over this and asking for someone to pull me back up. But in all reality, that picture kind of tells you where I was spiritually in my mid-20s. Because I was living in all kinds of evil and sin, calling myself a Christian. And the Lord Himself came to me and said, Todd, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he turned me around and he let me look over the ledge. And it was terrifying. For the first time I looked over the ledge at what I was flirting around with and I realized that I was in a very, very, very scary place. In that process, I felt my my knees buckle. I felt like I was gonna fall, and I felt like I was gonna be ruined for the rest of eternity, that maybe God was fed up with me. But in all reality, what was he doing? He was saving me. He was saying, Todd, you're in a very dangerous place and you need to turn back from the ledge and you need to come back to stable land. And so thankfully, by God's grace alone, he pulled me up by his strong arm and I'm alive today standing before you as a pastor all because of God's wondrous grace. But he said something to me that day and it wasn't an audible voice but it was pretty clear from scripture. Todd, I'm going to spare you. I'm going to pull you away from the ledge today. But I need you to do something from now on. I need you to fear me. And I need you to walk in my commands. Because it's for your good, Todd. And that was the first time I realized how much God actually loved me. Because he let me look over the ledge. And although that was an uncomfortable period in my life, it got me to where I needed to be. Safe. In the arms of Jesus. The first thing the fear of God should do is remind us who's in charge. The number two thing the fear of God should do, if it is a gift, and I believe it is, is it points us to our need of Jesus. Amen? Every single person who is a child of God has had this happen in their life. God had to come and show you the danger that you were living in. And we find this. In scripture, all over. But before that, I want to share a quote with you that I love from Charles Spurgeon, my favorite pastor and preacher of all time. He says, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. I love that quote. And in scripture, we find this concept of us being in a very, very bad situation. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead. It doesn't say badly off. It doesn't say near death. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's not very flattering, is it? That's not flattering for God to tell us. But it's reality. He's letting us look over the ledge and say, look how bad things are for you. Now, what is the point of that passage? To scare us? No. Because it says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The first thing God had to do before he could save us is show us what? The danger. The terror. The gloom of being without God. The gloom of being in our sins. The gloom of being dead spiritually for the rest of eternity. That's how Ephesians 2 starts. Now, the point is not to scare us or make us feel bad. The point is for us to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ and to trust in him with our souls. But in order for that to happen, he has to share with us the reality, the danger of our sins, the danger of our spiritual state. Now, we're going to have probably a little bit longer lesson today, and I could apologize for that, but I want to tell you something in fact. Back in the scripture, when people gave sermons, they were really long. We're talking like hours long. You have to get really comfortable, find a really comfortable seat. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter gives a sermon. This is after Jesus has rose from the dead, after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. The apostles get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands in Acts chapter 4 and declares a very powerful sermon. And most of the people listening are Jews. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, Jews, the builders. You rejected this Jesus. You kicked him aside like he was a pebble, like a nuisance in your shoe. But in all reality, he has become the cornerstone, the most important part of the building you rejected. You kicked him aside. You acted like he had no value at all. You crucified him. You Jews, you, his people, crucified your own Savior. Then he says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. Have you come to realize that yet? Have you come to realize that there is no other Savior to be found in all of the world or the universe? No one was sent to this earth to save us except the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the cornerstone of this church. He is the cornerstone of every church. He is the cornerstone of your very soul. And this should remind us of something. Because in, the, in Genesis, in the Old Testament, there was a situation very similar to this. Now, the world had gotten very bad, right? It had become corrupt so corrupt that God felt the need to start fresh. In fact, if you remember that period, he's he's writing and telling his thoughts to mankind, and basically he's saying this, I regret that I made mankind upon the earth. It grieved him to the heart that mankind was so corrupt. So he decided to judge the world. And the way he was going to do that is by a worldwide flood. Now we've had localized floods you guys have been in one of those or seen one of those on the news and those are sad but a worldwide flood is absolutely devastating and so God sent a worldwide flood to mankind because mankind was so corrupt and God was so fed up with them again when when God's anger has has come and his wrath is ready to be revealed it kindles very quickly but there was one family that God was pleased with and it was Noah Noah and his family had pleased the Lord, had found favor in his eyes. And so he told Noah, I'm going to send an agent of salvation to you. And for the next, I think it's a hundred years, Noah built this thing. I want you to build an ark out of gopher wood. And I want you to make it according to the precise instructions that I give you. Because this ark is going to spare your family from this destruction that I'm bringing upon the world. How many arks were there? One. What if Noah had neglected God's instruction? He would have perished in the flood like everyone else. But Noah did not neglect the instruction of God because he was told there's only one agent of salvation coming, and it's the ark. And you and your family and the animals that I tell you will need to get inside the door of that ark before the flood begins, because once the flood begins, it's going to be absolutely devastating. And Noah took that warning. And for the next hundred years, he built and built and built the ark along with his family according to the precise instructions God gave him so that one day he and his family could tuck inside the ark as the flood did come and be safe from the destruction. Well, Peter's saying that very thing. We are dead in our sins. We are awaiting the wrath of God. But there is a Savior sent to this earth. But there's only one Savior. And his name is Jesus. He is the cornerstone of all humanity. And if you... Find Jesus and tuck yourself inside of his grace. You will be safe forevermore. But if you don't, you will perish. And the next destruction that comes will not be water. What will it be? It'll be fire. And there's only one Savior. In Matthew 10, Jesus speaking, he says this. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Now I want you to picture that scene, okay? In the last day, you're standing before God the Father, and it's Judgment Day. It's time to look at your life. It's time to look at the things that you've done, the deeds that you've committed, the thoughts that you've had, and the kingdom of heaven is available, but the gates of hell are also available. And you need someone to vouch for you. And your soul. You need someone to be your mediator. You need someone to be your advocate on that last day. And Jesus steps forward and says to the Father, I have paid for their sins. I have shed my blood for their sins. They belong to me. Their sins are paid for. Let them into the kingdom of heaven. If we acknowledge Jesus before man here upon this earth, Jesus on the last day will acknowledge us before his Father who is in heaven. But he says this, whoever denies me before man, whoever is ashamed of me in this life before man, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that's a scary thought to have. But Jesus tells us that now so we can take that seriously and say, Lord, I don't want to be opposite of you on the last day. I want you to acknowledge me. I want you to vouch for me. I want you to stand before the Father saying my sins are atoned for. And Jesus says, then acknowledge me here upon the earth. Because there's only one key to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus holds it. And there's only one. And if you neglect Jesus, if we neglect Jesus, if we act like he's no big deal, if we kick him aside like a pebble in our shoes, and in the last day realize he's the cornerstone and the only one that has the key to the kingdom of heaven, that would be a sad, horrible thing to realize in the last day. But we don't have to, do we? We can realize it today, right now. And the fear of God is a gift because it tells us only Jesus. Find the Savior and tuck yourself inside of his grace. And once you do, you will be safe forevermore. We've got to keep moving because we're getting long already. It says the fear of God is a gift because it reminds us who's in charge. The fear of God is a gift because it points us to our need of Jesus. But the fear of God is a gift because it helps us turn away from evil. When I was little, my mom and dad selected a passage of Scripture for me. Do you remember this, mom? And I had a little plaque that was on my, the door of my room growing up that had this verse up there. It was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. There it is. And He will make your paths straight. And even from an early age I started to learn that if I manage my own life I'm going to do this in a very bad way, but if I let the Lord direct my path things will go a whole lot better. But if you notice the verse right after that, that's a verse I didn't know till recent. It says be not wise in your own eyes, Todd. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, Todd. You ever had this happen? Um, You make a, maybe if you use a guy's GPS, like I use GPS um, probably more than I should, I will not pay attention to the GPS, I will not listen to the GPS, and I will sail past the turn I need to make, and the GPS will tell me, Todd, make a U-turn when possible. Because you've gone the wrong way again, (laughs) Todd. Well, in my life, in my mid-20s, I was going the wrong, wrong way and the Lord had to come to young Todd and say, Todd, you're going the wrong way. Now, you could stay in this course. You can. That's your choice. I'm not going to drag you the other direction, kicking and screaming. I'm going to give you the choice to turn around. But if you don't turn around, Todd, the bridge is out, Todd. The direction that you're going right now, Todd, if you keep going in that direction, the bridge is out. You will eventually fall and be destroyed like the rest of mankind unless you turn around and turn away from evil. And I had to learn that because I was doing the very opposite. I, was, I had this false doctrine sent to me. And I, I think a lot of people fall into this false doctrine that somehow Christians don't have to worry about sin. That as long as we say a prayer when we're younger, we can live however we desire. Because in the last day we have our hands stamped. And I was living that way, saying, God, my hand has been stamped. Yes, I wish I was a little bit more holy. I wish I was a little bit more determined to serve you. But boy, I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. And that's when the Holy Spirit said, Todd, wrong way. Wrong way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? Why are you not turning away from evil? Turn around, Todd. This bridge is out. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Paul is writing to the church, and I've said this to my children before. He says, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, you guys ever had that as a, as a parent? You see your children obey when you're there watching them. Clean up your toys, and I'm going to watch you clean up your toys, and then they do it because they realize your piercing eyes are upon them. But as soon as you leave the room, they forget all about the toys. And I have to say to my children, listen, like I said to them this morning, Mommy's not here today, okay? Little Thurman is sick, so Mommy's not here today. I'm going to bring you guys today, but I need you to obey, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, because that's real obedience. Paul says that to the church. Obey, but not only when I'm there watching over you and taking care of you and showing you the right way, but do so in my absence and work out your own salvation (coughs) with fear and trembling. Work it out. It doesn't mean work for it, does it? It doesn't mean earn your salvation with fear and trembling. It says, work it out. Take that salvation that you've been given and work it out. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is an analogy I've used before, but I'm going to use it again. Because I believe the Christian life feels much like scaling a big mountain. Maybe like Everest. And this hill that we're climbing and we're ascending each and every year of our lives called Christ likeness takes a lot of work and a lot of detail and a lot of discipline. And we're we're climbing that mountain. That's how we work out our salvation. We're not working for our salvation. We've received our salvation free as a gift. But now we're working out that salvation and we're walking up this mountain little by little, slowly, more slowly than we hoped we would. I hope by this point in my life I would be more like Jesus Christ, but Year after year, I'm making slow progress up this mountain. Now, for those who do climb and hike on dangerous territory, are you careful when you walk? Of course you are, because any misstep could be tragic. For those who climb Mount Everest, I can imagine they do so with some fear and trembling. Would you assume that? Would you assume that those who scale a big mountain have a little bit of fear inside of them and trembling so they make the proper footing along the way? I would say yes, because any misstep can be their demise. Now, it's not quite all that grim for Christians. You can misstep in the Christian life and not be destroyed, of course. But he does say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he does say, "Work, uh, turn away from evil. Now, I want to share a passage of Scripture with you today that is probably the most uncomfortable passage we'll share all day. Okay, It comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 1 to 6. And this is the kind of passage that young Todd did not know. Young Todd was holding tightly to a theology that told him that I'm safe no matter how I walk, no matter how I live, no matter what kind of choices I make. I was holding tightly to that theology, even though that theology was leading me to live against the word of God. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, who is Paul talking to? Ephesians he's talking to a church in Ephesus so I need you to carry that in your back pocket okay Paul is not writing to the unbelievers Paul is writing to a people like this here today who says they are Christ believers Christ followers and Paul agrees that they are because he starts with his language therefore be imitators of God as beloved children he would not call unbelievers beloved children would he So there's another example of how we know Paul is speaking to Christians. And he says this in verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to to God. He's basically telling Ephesians what he told the Philippians, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and do so in love. Walk in love as Christ has done for you. And then in verse 5, this is the same thought, Carried out, talking to the same crowd. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. There's the third example for how we know he's talking to Christians. He says, This evil that you used to live in, you must not live in it any longer. In fact, it should not even be named among you as something that you're flirting with. He goes on to say, "Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but let there be love and thanksgiving." That's what you've been called to. You have not been called to flirt with sin, and the last day, show me your stamp and say, "I'm good, Jesus, even though I lived in lots and lots and lots of sin, I'm yours, and I have my hand stamp." Paul says the opposite. He says, "No. Child of God, beloved child, saint of God, let sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness not even be named among you. Let it be nowhere on your resume. Because that's not proper for a saint. That's not proper for a child of God. Now, do we at sometimes fall into these things? Yes. As a pastor, I want to tell you, sometimes as Christians, we fall into very heinous sins. And I don't think what Paul is saying is, if you ever fall into this, you're going to be found out to be a false Christian. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because I have fallen into sins, I have confessed those sins, and I've gotten back on the path by God's grace. But he's also telling us what? Turn away from evil. And listen to what he says as we keep going. In verse 5 he says this, For you may be sure of this. Who's he talking to? He's talking to everybody, but he's talking specifically to Christians. You, child of God, may be sure of this, that everyone who is, that's an important word, sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, listen to the language, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you do not turn away from evil as a pattern and theme of your life, When you do it, when you see it, if you do not turn from it, you can be sure of this, that you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why would he tell that to Christians? That was the first question I had when reading such a passage. Why would he ever warn Christians of this? Because evil is deadly. And we're going to come back to that here in a second. But he says this in verse 6. Let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and idolatry, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, he just called them children of God. And now he's telling them that the wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience. How do we make sense of this? Those who are saved, those who love Jesus, what do they do when they see evil? What should they do? Turn away. Now, if we don't turn away, we live in sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, on the last day, will we be found to be children of God? No. We'll be found to be sons of disobedience. Because how we live authenticates who we are. It doesn't mean we earn our salvation by being holy, but it does authenticate who we are, does it not? So when the child of God sees evil, what should the child do? Just like my children, and I'm going to get here in a minute. What should my child do when they they see and experience things that daddy has told them to not play around with? They should turn away from it. We all know what this is like. Because we get warnings all the time, do we not? We get warnings from the news media telling us, I don't know if you've ever lived in Tornado Alley or somewhere where there's natural disasters. We don't really experience a lot of them up here. But we've lived in Iowa, and some of you have lived down in Florida and places like that where there are hurricanes. And there's been some really tragic ones lately. What do you do when you hear a warning that a possible funnel cloud is in your county? Do you go out and mow your lawn? Go out and throw the ball around with your kid? No. No. You take the warning seriously and you go down to the basement or somewhere where you're safe because the tornado is real and the tornado can hurt your family. Why would God warn Christians? Because he loves them. And he knows that sin is deadly. Sin is the most deadly storm there's ever been. And so God and Paul are going to warn Christians very strictly about the dangers of evil. Now, we don't need to get so theological today that we can't see that truth, right? And here's the option. When you see theology and doctrine, doctrine is what God says about himself, and theology is a system that we come up with to help us understand what God said about himself. So when you see theology and, and doctrine kind of come together and you're not sure which one to hold on to, hold the theology loosely and hold the doctrine tightly. If God says, Christian, turn away from evil, don't say, my theology doesn't accept that. That's bad. Say, God, you said turn away from evil. I'm going to turn away from evil. Because that's what's, that's what's good for us. And I know what this is like because I'm a loving, doting father. I love my eight children. I love them so much I would risk my life for these children. And sometimes my children need to be warned. When I see my child on two legs of a four-legged chair, what do I tell them? (laughs) Sit down on all four legs because one of our children actually fell back one day and concussed himself. And I remember that. So now when I see a child on two legs of a four-legged chair, I warn them, get on four legs so that you don't fall. Or let's picture an even more bleak scenario. My child's ball one day bounces out into the road. And I've told them before that if this happens, do not run across the road, but come get daddy and daddy will go fetch the ball for you. But on this day, my child decides to not listen to his dad. And I'm watching over my children, I'm looking out the window, or I step outside just to check on them, and I see this scenario taking place. My child's ball bounces out into the road, a busy road, and I see them go after it. Now, if you were a father or a mother, what would you do at that moment? Would you stop and kindly tell them the reasons why there's more safety in the yard? Would you tell them how much joy there is obeying their parents? Or would you do what I would do? And what I have done is yell at the top of my lungs, Stop! Maybe to such a level that my children are terrified the noise that's coming out of their father. But what is their father trying to do? Save their life. Because I'd rather them get scared from their dad than a car hit them head on and they die. And that's where a father is going today. Now, I've been in young adult ministry. Maybe some of you know this. Some of you don't. But before I was a pastor, I was in young adult ministry for about 12 years. And I spent most of my time around young men, ages 18 to 30. And I probably don't have to tell you the number one sin issue for young men. Maybe for all men. But definitely for young men is sexual immorality. And these young men, once they got comfortable with me and started to confess a little bit of the things that they were struggling with, 99% of them always said it's the same sin. It's sexual immorality and pornography and things like that. Well, I said, well, what kinds of things are you doing to stop it? They said, well, I've, I've tried getting an accountability partner that holds me accountable for how I'm doing. I've, I've told myself I shouldn't take my phone or my computer to bed at night, and I shouldn't do it when I'm alone. And I've heard, I've heard ministers tell me that there's more identity in a Christ follower than being, than, than being with evil. And there's more joy following God than there is following the sin. And I said to them, I said, have you heard the number one strategy for defeating sexual morality? And they said, no, what is it? And I said, the fear of God. And I told them that as a person who had experienced this in my mid-twenties. God came to me and he didn't. Theologically, tell me all the answers for why I should stay away from sexual immorality. He told me this. He said, Todd, you may be sure of this that all who are sexually immoral have no inheritance in the Christ, kingdom of Christ and God. Todd, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And guess what happened to young Todd? Let's go back to the screen. I turned around. I turned around that day. I didn't need an accountability partner. Not that they're bad. I didn't need disciplines with my phone, although that's a good strategy. What did I need more than I needed anything? I needed the fear of God to come into my soul to say, Todd, the bridge is out that direction. If you stay on that course, it doesn't matter what you claim, the sin will kill you. Turn away from evil and live, Todd. And I was terrified, going, God, that doesn't flatter me. That doesn't make me feel loved and and accepted. And God says, that's not what I'm going for right now, Todd. I'm going for salvation of your life. And maybe you've heard this quote from a famous reformer. His name is John Owen. He said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. It's that simple. We don't have to get so theological here that we miss." what God's word is saying. I don't want anyone coming up to me after the end of the sermon or this week saying, oh, you believe you can lose your salvation? No, I don't. Or saying, oh, you don't believe in eternal security? Yes, I do. I'm just telling you what the word of God states. The child of God, when they see evil, will turn away from evil. And the son of disobedience won't. It's that simple. And it's so simple that a child can understand it. And the fear of God is a gift because what does it do? It helps us turn away from evil. And evil will hurt us in so many different facets and degrees. And God doesn't want it for us. So God says, as your loving, doting father, when I see you flirting with evil, and you can find this in Hebrews, God disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When the fear of God is sent into your soul, it says, Todd, you cannot play with it. You cannot touch that. You cannot go near such things. Those things will hurt my child, and I do not want that for my child. Turn away from evil and live. Let's get to the last one because we are really running short on time. The last thing the fear of God does is it chases away all other fears. Again, I don't know what phobias you have. I have my own list of things that I'm actually terrified of. I'll give you one. I'm, I'm claustrophobic. Anyone else? I do not like tight spaces. Okay, one time I sat at a booth with... Five other big guys, okay? And I was pinned against the wall, against two bigger guys, and I was against the wall, and these guys were right next to me, and I was so claustrophobic, I said, guys, you got to let me out. I am so claustrophobic, i got to get to the end of the booth. And these young guys thought it was funny to to joke with me, so they decided to press in even further next to me, (laughs) to which I almost had a panic attack. (laughs) I don't know what fears you guys have, but the fear of God is a gift because it helps us turn away from evils. Now, I told Peggy, at one point in the sermon, she might be a little uncomfortable. Now, this is not real, of course. I don't have a real spider today. But I do have a story. Does anyone like stories? I do have a story. And I'm going to share this story with you. And I could read the story. But even though it's a short story, it would take too long to share. So I'm going to give you the abridged format of this story, okay? There was a man once who was deathly afraid of spiders. What is the name of that fear? Does anyone know? Arachnophobia. Arachnophobia. Wow, everyone has that one. Arachnophobia the fear of spiders. And this man in this story was deathly afraid of spiders. Well, one day, his buddies convinced him to go on a camping trip in the woods. And it was the three of them, they were going to camping in the woods for a weekend, all have separate tents, and the man decided, after some convincing, that he was going to go with his friends. So he went into the woods with his friends, and they had a good time. They had three individual tents, they all had their own tent, and they're fishing, you know, they're having hot dogs and s'mores, having a really good time, and And at night, it was getting late. And they decided they were going to wrap it up for the night and go back to sleep in their tents. So the man did. He went back into his tent, and he was going to read for a half hour before he went to sleep. So he had his book out. He's reading by flashlight for a half hour before he went to sleep. And he's in his tent, and he noticed something creeping into the beginning, the entrance of his tent. And it was a big, hairy, nasty-looking spider. And you have to remember, this man is deathly afraid of spiders. So now this man is taking his flashlight, which was on his book, and now aiming it at the spider, and he's realizing it's a big one. And it looks like it has lunch on its mind. (laughs) And it's creeping ever so closely. And He only has one entrance to this tent, okay? And the spider is creeping ever so closely toward him in his tent. Now this man is terrified of spiders, and he's imagining the worst-case scenario. The the spider's going to bite me, inject its venom in me, I'm going to die right here in my tent all by myself. The man is terrified. And time seemed to stop still. Well, all of a sudden this man hears a noise. And thought to himself, do spiders make noise? And what he heard was a loud grumble. And uh, he hadn't spent a lot of time in the woods, but it was pretty safe to assume what that noise was. And he had, this man had inched himself away from the spider as far as he can, so he's up at the back part of his tent. And all of a sudden, he feels something behind him to go along with the grumble, kind of like a paw. And then in a moment, his tent starts to shake violently, and the bear lets out a truly awful growl. Now, this man is so terrified in the moment, he runs as fast as he possibly can, toward the entrance of his tent. He runs out of his tent. He yells to his other friends, get out, there's a bear. And they all sprint to the car, get in the car and, and peel away and drive away. And as they drive back, they look back upon their tents and they're all completely destroyed. And the man realized at that moment what he had done. He had left his snacks out of his bag and the bear had picked up the scent of the snacks while he was reading and the bear wanted those snacks. So the bears destroyed all three tents and got the snacks And the three men narrowly escaped a bear attack. Well, on their way home, they're all kind of breathing heavily and kind of chuckling nervously about their experience with the bear. And about 10 minutes into the trip, the man remembers something. What happened to the spider? (laughs) He hadn't thought about it in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. The spider was out of his mind all of a sudden. And now he's terrified again because he thought, well, maybe... The spider bit me, and I didn't know it. So he's checking his body for bite marks, seeing if the spider had actually bit him, and he didn't see anything, so he felt relieved, and he didn't know what happened. Well, he got home, and it was late at night, and the the buddies dropped him off at night, and he went inside, and he... Remember, he didn't take his boots or his his knapsack or anything. He had nothing except what was on his body. He went and went to take his sock off. And guess what was on the bottom of his sock? Mr. Spider. All dead and guts-like, and he took that spider, he took that sock off, and normally that that sight would have made him jump out of his skin, but he just laughed because he realized what the bear had done that day. Removed his fear of spiders. (laughs) And now he was terrified of bears. (laughs) Is the point of today's lesson fear? You might think so. In fact, look, look at this passage from Matthew 10. Jesus says this, do not fear those who can kill the body. Thanks, Jesus. Yeah. Do not fear fear those who can kill the body. That, that sounds like every phobia that exists. The fear of spiders, they can kill us. The fear of spi- uh, snakes, they can kill us. The fear of the dark, there might be someone in the dark who can kill us. The fear of heights, it could possibly kill us. Jesus says don't have any phobias regarding those who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul Rather fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. It sounds like Jesus walk, wants us walking out of this, walking on eggshells, terrified of him. Is that really what he's going for? He brings up hell as a concept of what you should really be scared of. Now back in the old the New Testament days, they had this place called Gehenna. And Gehenna was basically a trash dump that everyone would take their trash to, and they'd light it on fire. So this hill... Gehenna was always on fire it was like an eternal fire and that's the word Jesus uses for hell and he's not referring to literal Gehenna he's referring to a place of total destruction of both soul and body he says don't fear those who can only kill the body why? because there's a much greater fear if you have fear fear only him who can destroy both soul and body in hell is anyone encouraged? you are? well I'm impressed actually because I wasn't when I first read that now I, now I just got scared of bears instead of spiders. Thank you, Lord. But is, is the Lord going for fear here? Not really. Because right after that, he says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Back in the day, sparrows were worth nothing. Even today, they're probably worth nothing. There's so many sparrows. Nobody thinks about the sparrows. You could buy two sparrows. I don't know why you were buying sparrows, but either a pet or lunch. But, but you could buy two sparrows sold for a penny. And he says, are not one of them. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. You might not care about the sparrows, but your God does. Your father feeds the sparrows. He takes care of the sparrows. Not one of the sparrows can fall to the ground apart from your father's will. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, for a guy like me, that doesn't sound like a hard task. Um, But even me, I probably still have thousands of hair, even if you don't believe it. He says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He says, fear not. What do you just tell us to do? Fear him. Is this a contradiction? No, what is fear doing? Keeping us, alive. Keeping us alive and chasing away every other fear. He says, fear not, I tell you, you are of more values than many sparrows. Is the point of this lesson to tremble and to be walk on eggshells with your God? Absolutely not. The point, ironically, is confidence. Without the fear of God, we would try to manage our own lives, and that would go poorly. We would neglect the Savior, and that would go poorly. We would trifle with all kinds of evil, and that would go poorly. We would be fearful of all the wrong things, and that would would go poorly. But if the fear of God is a gift, and I believe it is, and I believe you can see that here today, the point of the fear of God, ironically, is not fear, but it is confidence. Does God want you scared of him at all times? No, he does not. How do we know that? We listen to scripture. It says, And now little children, in 1 John 2, such an affectionate term, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have, what's the word? Fear? So that when Jesus appears, I'm terrified of Jesus, that he can send me to hell? No, that's not the point. The point is that you'll have fear now and confidence later versus confidence now and fear later. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you keep reading in 1 John, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. What does the fear of God do? It gives us confidence. Because we have a term in the scriptures called reconciliation. Reconciliation. You would think a God who's so full of wrath and terror and all and almighty power would be someone we wouldn't want to be anywhere near, right? And maybe that's what you're thinking in your mind some abusive father that you've experienced going, Man, is God like that? Is he just trying to scare me and and get me to really panic around being around him? No, because there's this term in the scripture called reconciliation, and you know what that term means brought back together with God. Where is the scariest place to be away from your father? Where is the safest place to be? Near your father. Thank you. That's right. Closeness to your father. And the fear of God doesn't drive you away from God. It drives you away from evil. Where does it draw you to? To God. Closeness to God. So God can fight off all the scary. Do you see what the fear of God is doing? It's replacing one fear with the other because the other fear is actually a safety and all the other fears are a danger to us. God is drawing out the best fear possible, but not so that we tremble at all times. Because the fear of the Lord, what does it do? Leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Do you believe that? Do you believe your God loves you so much that even he's going to put you in sort of an uncomfortable lesson like today and say, don't don't leave. Listen to this. Listen to the whole lesson. Because it's for your good. Because he did it to me. And I'm standing here today because he did it to me. And if he did not do that to me in my mid-twenties, I shudder to think where I would be. Because I would not have appreciated Jesus. I would not have turned away from evil. And I possibly would have perished in my sins. Making the fear of God a gift of God's grace. And I know we went fast, and I know it's a lot of text, and I gave you notes, and I hope you will continue to explore this topic. Because there's so much more to be said on it. But I hope you will understand that God's fear is drawing you to the safety and the refuge of Jesus Christ for all eternity. So that you don't have to perish. So that you don't have to be harmed in the ways that would damage your soul. Because your God loves you that much as a loving, doting Father. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, I know this is a lengthy, hard, heavy lesson but I believe it's one necessary for Crossroads Church so that we can go to the places we need to go. Because we need to be like Jesus. We need to think like Jesus. We need to reach this world for Jesus. And if we have all kinds of fears and insecurities, I don't think we will. But if we will replace these petty fears with the right kind of fear, a healthy fear of God, then I believe Crossroads Church will do something magnificent, will become courageous and brave, and bold to do what God has called us to do, to scale a mountain that we have no business scaling, to reach a nation we have no business reaching, because we have the grace of God and we have the fear of God. I hope I've represented this properly today, and I hope that you'd encourage every soul here to walk in the ways that you've taught us, because it's for our good and for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.